I don't know that I've ever taught a series that seemed more fundamental and elementary in its concept than taking a fresh look at the gospel. Um, it's it's a little it's so fundamental that it's a little bit intimidating actually to to understand the why behind doing it. But as I dig in always, and as I get just in, into a few simple basics, which we're going to look at a couple simple basics tonight, I still I have a a real sense of assurance and a sense of conviction that it's worth looking at. And I think one of the things that both the enemy and the world does to us is it see it, it, it's it's not like it's not like the devil or the culture minds it if you have a religion. But they're both very offended and intolerant if you have a relationship with God. And as I've been going through this stuff, and there's so much of it that uh, the thing that is a little intimidating is uh, I feel like a great big bag of water that I've got to try to put a little tiny hole in so that it's not like drinking from a fire hose, you know? And then that means there's a lot left over. But the, in my heart, the scope of the gospel is, is so, not just big, but beautiful and exciting and comforting because it's relationship. And then when I read about it or I hear people talking about it or even, you know, whatever, uh, that's almost 100% missing in, in the thoughts about the gospel. The gospel becomes like a label on a file folder as opposed to this treasure chest of life or as opposed to this spring of life. And so I, I, we're going to take a, a very simple step. I can tell you in 30 seconds what I hope to walk away from, what I hope us to walk away from tonight's message. And I hope, my hope is this, that 99 times out of 100, when you think or talk about the story of Jesus, the gospel, this kind of thing, you will think of it and use words in the terms good news rather than gospel. And, and the reason is because even with all that our current social and political and media climate has done, news is still something that you listen to. It's still something that when you get good news, you can't help but smile. You can't help but celebrate it. And the gospel, which is that and should provoke that, too often, I think, has been sort of positioned in by the world, by our culture, even sometimes by us, you know, religious leaders and stuff, church leaders, into a, a holding place or into a, like I say, a label on a file. And so, Father, I ask that you would, that you would open our eyes in a fresh way to the scope of the good news, the breadth of it, that it would make our heart catch and our, our, our face curl up in a smile and our eyes brighten and our spirits soar as we think about the good news of Jesus Christ. Just help us 
make, make a step to recapture the beauty and the vitality of the good news. And help me tonight, Father, root it in your word and in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's see how we're doing here. So, uh, this part two. And I, I put recapturing because I do think that, that uh, for me anyway, uh, the beauty of the good news has been lost. So that's the idea behind that little caption there. So I got just two slides for review. I want to review contemporary uses. Titles for the first four books of the New Testament. Let me say off the bat, it's okay, I think, for us to still call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the Gospels. <laughs> I'm not trying. Uh, you could call them the good news, though. But, uh, uh, but I, you know, so I'm not, I don't have an issue that way. Uh, second, we generally, it's used for any form of preaching or telling of the story of Jesus. Remember? We talked about that last week. And under the influence of Western theology, and I, I changed my, the way I phrased this a little bit, because I was kind of picking on Reformed theology. And, uh, and it is true that Reformed theology does limit its articulation of the gospel to apply to the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus by their own teachers and their own scholars and so on. Uh, but I also don't want you to think, well, I'm not a Reformed person. I'm not a Presbyterian or I'm not a Scottish Calvinist or whatever the case is. And therefore, you know, that doesn't apply to me. So what I want you to understand is that the influence of Reformed theology is pervasive in Western culture. Much of the way we think is rooted in the foundations that were in the Reformation. And some of you, Tim, like you came out of a Catholic background. Vicky came out of a Catholic background. What you came out of into is the influence of Western Reformed thinking. And so, and, and it's not all bad. It's not all bad, but as it relates to the gospel, it is limiting. It's, it's, it's uh, limited to Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension. And then I also thought of some scriptures that, that they would use and that would cause us confusion. People could challenge me on saying, you know, uh, like Paul says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, I came to you uh, seeking to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, that sounds like that he is limiting himself to just these things. But if you go on reading, the beautiful part about that scripture, and I think, Dan, you mentioned it, uh, it's hard to preach out of uh, one verse anymore without going to the context, because if you keep reading there, if you keep reading there, Paul says, but um, we have mysteries to reveal that the Spirit reveals to us that have been hidden in ages past and are now being, you know, eyes not seen, ears not heard, what God has prepared for those who love them, you know. And so almost every place where you see this focus, and I'm not against having a focus on the cross, but it, the, the point of the cross is to open us up to the whole of the relationship that's available for us in Christ. And so that's, that's, but that is a very common usage of hearing the, the gospel. And then it's also very common to use it as a synonym for the plan of salvation. And uh, both of these things carry some baggage with them that I, I think most of us have laid aside but I did just want to point out that it's still a part of the language of our culture. The idea of the, resur- the uh, gospel being simply the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus is, is usually linked with an opportunity to believe, confess, and be saved from something. Right? And often, more often than not, probably, it's being saved from our sin. But have any of you ever run into anybody who was sharing with you, or have you ever had the thought that you needed to be saved from your father? No, your heavenly Father. Saved from your heavenly Father. There's a lot of gospel preaching 
that when you boil down to it and you focus on it, it's that Jesus stood there to appease God. There's a lot of gospel preaching that places the Father as the one whose wrath we have to be delivered from. And I I think that's a uh, tragic misrepresentation of what went on on the cross. According to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that God was in Christ, reconciling the cosmos to himself, not counting their trespasses against us. And, uh, and then, you know, as ambassadors to God, we urge you, be reconciled to God. So that's one. Then this other one, uh, the synonym for the plan of salvation, meaning confession, repentance, praying the sinner's prayer, gaining the promise of heaven, or avoiding hell. There's a component in that that has always troubled me, even back when that was all I understood. And it's like we, we confront somebody with the need the first step of salvation, the first step that the gospel preaches is their need to become totally self-centered and introspective. You have to look at your sin and you have to accept this work of Jesus to set you free and get you to heaven and do all this kind of stuff. Now, some of those are, are worthy aspirations, but I think there's a better way of understanding the good news. The good news is not that you have to become intensely self-aware and intensely self-focused, me-centered. And unfortunately, I think that, that we experience some of that in, ongoing in Christianity. So that's unfortunately one of the things I think is there. Now, here's six troubles with the common use of the gospel. When it's reduced to the plan of redemption or the story of Jesus, we can both believe it and accept it and still be on the outside of it. We can accept it as a proposition. Okay, We talked about that last week. And it doesn't always lead to relationship. And sometimes it's not even, a st- it's not even taught to lead to relationship. It's, lead, it's taught to lead to being in a certain position where the things that Jesus did covers you or the intercession that he made before the Father protects you as opposed to being in a relationship with God. Uh, the other common issue in in the gospel is that Jesus is only a part of it. He's not the good news himself. Sometimes it's like a tool. I'm going to read something from uh, Baxter Kruger before we get out of here today. And it emphasizes a lot of this. But the opposite of that is that Jesus himself is the good news. I'm going to show you that in just a second. Uh, If it's limited to the events of the cross, then Believers can go their whole life not really understanding the ramifications in the Scripture about Jesus being the creator of everything. In Hebrews 1, it says that all things were created by him. In John, it says uh, everything was made through him and nothing was made without him. That's very significant. Because when he came to his own, we were his own by virtue of, of his authority over us as creator. And it's the doorway that opens up our childhood when we receive him that way. So it's important. The idea of incarnation and bodily ascension, I was taught in Bible college that the primary reason Jesus had to become incarnate was so he could die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was Assemblies of God Bible College. That's what they taught. Uh, made sense to me at the time, but the more I, I think about it, the more I've grown, I realized that's a pretty narrow view. And But I didn't know what to replace it with until I started learning about the heart of the Father towards relationship with us. And what he came was to be us. 
in our mess to be us and to bring into that mess of us, to bring into that mess of us, his knowledge of the Father. And that would be a whole sermon in itself, or two or three or five or ten, or a lot of small groups. But it, it's, it's stunning when you start to understand that Jesus isn't offering us a pass, or he's not offering us a shield, or he's not offering us a ticket. He is literally offering us the intimate, dynamic knowledge that he has had with his Father forever. As opposed to that. And then the bodily ascension is one that still freaks me out. Uh, there's, there's more to our bodies being redeemed than most of us think about. Uh, one of the stunning things that has happened, not only is that Jesus came to bring us his intimate knowledge of his Father from the inside of us. And how many believe that Jesus lives inside you? Okay. He brought his stuff with him. He moved in with his knowledge of the Father. He moved in with his power of the Holy Spirit. And so not only does he bring that precious, unique knowledge into us, he has brought us into the Godhead. Yeah. Who would have thought that? The bodily ascension of Jesus means that right now, seated at the right hand of the Father, is a human being. Granted, he's a glorified human being. But he is, and granted, he is the divine son. But he is also a glorified human being. And whatever confusion the angels might have had about why God was all head over heels for these dirt creatures... <laughs> They may not fully understand the why before, but they understand the magnitude of it now. Because in the triune Godhead is a human being. And in him is us. That's, that's the good news of the gospel that is beyond really even talking about coherently most of the time. Uh, one of the other troubles is that believing the story replaces knowing God. And I, there was a time in my life when I know for a fact I put more value in what I knew than in who I knew. And fortunately, I'm trying to get away from that now. And God's pretty responsive. So, Now, my question is, what would it be like for somebody who, right at the beginning of their introduction to the gospel, realized that, knowing God, literally, and being known by God, was what was being offered. It wasn't the fruit of a lifelong discipleship process. It wasn't the fruit of something when you die that God really wanted to be known and wanted us to know him. I think it could change everything. And the last one, uh, I think it's the last one. There might be one more. Uh, I mean, one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, there's one more. God's motives, when the gospel is that sort of doctrinal package, God's motives, I find, are very seldom given much credit. But in the Scripture, it talks all the time about God loved, God did this, God came, God sent. And the last one, 
is that fundamentally, I think this is a little bit of a carryover of the fall, uh, Adam. We are legalists at heart. We are more satisfied, generally speaking, if somebody tells us what to do than tells us the kinds of things we can do if we want and what they might produce. Uh, I remember one time I was, I was before the Lord and, and I said, Lord, I, I don't want to be one of those people that just teaches what itching ears have to hear. And I felt like he was laughing and he said, well, you're not. He says, people don't want to hear what you're teaching. They want to hear, do these three things and you'll be okay and everything will be fine. You'll go to heaven. And, and, and so give us a plan. Don't make it too complicated. Don't make it too hard. And don't let it interfere with the things we like, but just give us a plan here's what that cost us. It cost us union, our awareness of our union with God, our oneness with Him. And I am so grateful that most of us at Joyland have at least begun to get a taste of union, a taste of oneness. Oh my gosh, to be one with the Creator of the universe, to be one with the King of Kings and the Ancient of Days, that is worthwhile. As super worthwhile. And so these are some of the things that I, I just believe are a problem. So thinking of the gospel as the good news helps us recognize and proclaim, and tonight I'm going to concentrate on three little things, that the good news begins in and expresses our Father's heart. Any presentation of the good news is going to carry with it the enthusiasm in the heart of the Father for us. I... Uh, I learned something a long time ago. I was looking uh, in uh, Hebrews chapter 4 uh, about the coming to the throne of grace and all that dealing with God and the one we have to deal with, and he sees us. And one of the lexicons I looked at, I think it was Loanita, but I'm not sure. But one of them explained grace in a way that I had never heard it. And the, the sort of stock thing, um, definition of grace is unmerited favor. And I think, Dan, you would agree that grace is a lot more than just undeserved favor. Dan's got a pretty good book out. Uh, Hyper Mega Super Grace? No. <laughs> what is it? What's the name? Turbo. Turbo. <laughs> Extreme Turbo Mega Grace. So I'm working my way through that book. He gave it to me back in the Mueller conference tonight. I read a little bit of it then, and I got caught up, and, and now I'm, uh, I'm finishing it up. Uh, but we're going to have Dan talk to us about grace sometime. But this definition of grace really, really, really set, set my heart on fire. It said it's the benevolence in the heart of a superior toward an inferior or an underling or something. So grace, I had always, again, coming out of the, the training I was in, grace had always been a, uh, uh, it had been a doctrine for one thing, and it had been a positional thing. You know, that uh, I stand in, in grace by faith or something. And, and, and it, it did have a lot to do with favor that I probably didn't deserve. When I realized that the word grace, at least in part, means God's attitude, heart attitude towards us, towards me, that was revolutionary. You mean, you mean grace is not just some kind of bubble you put over me so I can screw up and not utterly fail. You mean you look at me and you feel affection for me. You feel enthusiasm for me. You feel hope for me. 
That was so foreign to the way I learned it. And it goes back to the idea of relationship. And so, yeah. Uh, How'd I get to that? So the good news begins in and expresses that heart of grace for us. And that heart of grace was extended before you ever said a prayer. It was extended before you ever asked for anything, before you ever repented of anything. Back at the beginning, before the beginning of time, God's heart took shape toward us in grace. That also helps us realize that grace wasn't just an emergency plan after we screwed things up. It was the grace of God to to create and the grace of God to identify and the grace of God to send His Son and become and the grace of God to draw us to Him. So, that's a cool one. The second one is the good news is and is about Jesus Himself. Okay? And I know that's not a very good grammatical sentence, but the good news is and is about Jesus Himself. The last one is the good news is already is what has already happened to us. Just a little brief prelude before I get into the Scriptures to support these. Uh, the opposite, or the, the antithesis to that, is that the good news is that Jesus died and rose again to forgive your sins so that you have an opportunity to have something wonderful happen to you. And that would be called being born again or being saved or something along those lines. But the, the gospel, the good news, really is what has already happened to us, independent of our knowledge of it and independent of our decision of it. So that changes the nature of what decision we're being given the opportunity to make and we're being called to make. So hopefully I can point that out and it'll make some sense. And that's why I want to speed through a little bit because I want to have time for questions in case I'm off base. All right, so here's the one about the Father's heart that I'm going to use just an illustration. Very familiar verse in John uh, 3.16, but let's read the first few verses before it. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that, he, but that the world would be saved through him. So I want to point out two or three things about the Father's heart that's revealed in here. First of all, the sending of Jesus and God's heart toward us, the love that motivated that sending, is not a reaction to sin. It's not a brand new thing. It's the same pattern. Jesus said this to Nicodemus, and he went back and used as an illustration the serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness when the children of Israel had rebelled and had been discontent and the serpents were biting and all this kind of stuff. And so Jesus was in God's mind well before his coming. And the motive of God's heart is that people who believe will have eternal life. So eternal life, seeing as how it's not a place and a thing, It's a relationship with knowing God. It's 100% a part of who God is. It's God opening his life up to us to know him. And so he can't have made that as a late-breaking decision. He made that in the beginning when he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. So the heart of the Father 
for you to be his child has always been that way. It's what motivated creation. It's what motivated your birth. It's what motivated the history of your life. He's always wanted you and me. That's the good news. It's not a Johnny-come-lately thing. It's not that Jesus appeased him and he changed his mind. He loves us, and he made us for himself. Let us make man in our image. There's more to that statement than we understand. All right, love is that motive. It's one of those motives that doesn't get talked about a lot in the, the doctrinal view of the gospel that most of us travel in. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, and there's an interesting Greek in there, but I'm not going to go into too much detail. This isn't a verse outlining a choice that we make. This is a verse talking about the motive of the, God, of the heart of God. That God loved everybody so much that he sent his son that anyone who believes will be saved and have eternal life. But the love is the motive. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes should not perish. And then look at how, the, look at how this verse, how this, not even, I don't even like calling it a verse. This is Jesus explaining what Nicodemus could not understand, even as a teacher of Israel. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved for him. What was God's intention sending Jesus? To save the world. What was the motive for sending Jesus? Love the world. For the love of the world, he sent his only unique son, not to judge the world, but to save it. Jesus, later in in, uh, John chapter 12, says something amazing. I almost never hear anybody preach on it. He says, even if you don't do what I say, I'm not going to judge you. Because I didn't come to judge the cosmos. I came to save the cosmos. Check it out. John chapter 12. Read it, and you'll see that Jesus' heart exactly conformed with the motive of the Father. Awesome. All right. So this is the news about the Father's heart. God is motivated by love from before time, and that love drove him to create. That drove him to be with us. That love drove him to send his Son and to redeem us. And that love is going to drive him to do everything that is possible to let us know that we are adored by our Father in heaven and be in relationship with him. Okay? See his heart? It's not, a, it's not complicated. But if we miss it, we'll fill that motive with all sorts of things like judicial holiness or, or other things like that. All right, now here's the good news about Jesus himself. There's a lot of places in the scripture we could have looked at, but I wanted to look at this one about Christmas or Sukkot. We can apply it more relevantly, correct, right here. And and the angel of the Lord, you you know what this is about, right? The shepherds were out in the field and the angels appeared and they were all scared. And then uh, an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, these shepherds. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Now listen to what he says. For behold, 
I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. This numeric standard, I like translation. Um, a, a lot of times that end one's translated um, on whom he has favor or highly favored or something like that. Have you ever thought about this being the initial articulation of the good news of Jesus? I bring you good news. What is that good news? A baby is born. It's the most fundamental expression of the good news of the gospel. Is the baby Jesus. Being born in innocence being born in vulnerability, being born as a human, being born through blood and water, being born through tears, being born helpless, utterly dependent. It was step one. It was step one of him entering into humanity in full identification. So he could die. He was able to so he could get in the middle of our mess and he could bring the knowledge of his Father. This is why I think we can be safe in saying the good news is about Jesus. Because the first that anything was heard of it from the skies on earth was when these shepherds heard that. Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. Today, there has been born for you a Savior. Pretty powerful, I think. All right. Now, here's the good news about us in Jesus. Remember the three things I said? There's good news about the Father's heart toward us. There's good news about who Jesus is Himself. And the good news is about who we are in Him. So here's... One of the first ones. So then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Who committed that one transgression? Adam. All right. So he's talking about how uh, the, the father of the human race committed a, a, a transgression and then condemnation came for all men. Even so, through the at one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Who did that one act of righteousness? Jesus did that. All right. For as though, as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Now, don't trip up there saying the many and the many. There's a parallelism that if you'll just let it exist, how many people were exposed to sin because of Adam? All of them. Now, we don't have to go to the place where we inherit it from Adam. It, it came through Adam. It came to the world through Adam. I like the way Harold Everly talks about it. Sin came like a disease, a highly contagious disease, and because of its freedom, we all caught it. For it's through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. 
Even so, through the obedience of one, the many will be made righteous. The ones who were made sinners, the purpose of Jesus is to make that group righteous. There's too much there to highlight. Let's look at the next one. All right. In another place, Paul says it this way. For as in Adam, all die. How many died? All. So also in Christ, all will be made alive. That'll mess you up. You don't have to know how. You just have to know what the intention is. Now, what I was trying to say in that other thing is, the good news is what's already happened to us. Do you think, how many of you have ever thought that the scope of the gospel, the scope of the sacrifice of Jesus, the death and and resurrection of Jesus, the scope of the good news, was so that you and I could have an opportunity to believe and be righteous. Now, I think we have to believe, and I think that, but there is an element to this where God dealt with the whole of the human race in Christ. So, there's so much that needs to be said about this, but I'm going to read something out of this little book, Jesus and the Undoing of Adam. And um, this is from Baxter Kruger. So this, it'll, it'll help put some of his words to this, and, and then we'll have some time for questions. The heart of the gospel is the news that in his death and resurrection, something was happening to you and to me and to the human race. When he died... We died. And when he rose, we rose again to new life. There and then, 2,000 years ago. Listen to how Paul describes this in Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. The gospel is the astonishing news that something has happened to the Son of God and the equally astonishing news that in Him something has happened to the human race. If the whole human race fell into ruin in Adam, a creature, a mere man, what happened to the human race in the death of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God? Well, Paul tells us, when Jesus Christ died, we died. But that's only the beginning. When he rose, we rose. He ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty, the place of honor and love and delight and complete and utter acceptance. And Paul tells us that in his ascension, we too were lifted up and seated with him at the Father's right hand, and there and then welcomed, accepted, and embraced forever. The gospel is the good news of what became of the Son of God, and what became of us in him. It is the news that Adam and all of us were crucified with Christ, dead and buried. And on the third day, Adam and all of us were quickened with new life and raised with Jesus, and then lifted up to the Father's right hand in Jesus' ascension and seated with Christ. What happened on the cross? Why did Jesus die? How do we understand the meaning of his death? The death of Jesus Christ was part of a seamless movement 
in which the triune God laid hold of the human race and decisively and sovereignly altered its very existence, cleansing it of all alienation, quickening it with new life, and lifting it up into union with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is finished. I just think that's an amazing articulation. And this puts in a, in a much more understandable and realistic space what we are called to do. We are called to believe and to receive that. We are called to recognize it. It's very critical that we do it. But we are not the originators of the rescue. We don't rescue ourselves. He did that. So, mic's open. If you guys have any thoughts or questions, I'm totally wide open to it. Or answers, if you have answers. Yeah, go ahead, Janet. Got it. I just saw that, like, when you were saying all that, it's it's actually like there was a timeline that was, you know, changed when Jesus came through the whole earth. It's like there's a new timeline now, and it's what he did with the human race. <laughs> um, but it wasn't a timeline that began as its origin when that happened. He brought that timeline, that relationship, he brought the heart of the Father to that. And so that timeline, almost like it went back and replaced yes. all the stuff in the back. I mean, just imagine yeah. if that wasn't... But it's all part of God's plan from the beginning, which is mind-blowing. And I'm where does his plan come from? Uh, from him. From him, from his heart, from his mind. This isn't a, this isn't a, uh, a reaction. It's not a plan B. Any other thoughts, guys? Sterling? For whatever reason, as you're talking through this, I feel like people can subscribe to this idea of unconditional love, but the grace thing, for some reason, so I'd love to read your book, for whatever reason, that can't be unconditional. Yeah. And I don't know why. Yeah. I don't really get it. It's like there's this rule that people have that something has to be satisfied in order for grace to actually work properly. Yeah. And so anyway, I don't know why I was thinking about that, but it seems to permeate, I think a lot of the gospel that people have, like God loves you, but only when that one thing is unlocked. Yeah. Yeah. And if it's not that particular version of, but only there are three or four other prominent ones in Western theology uh, has to do with election, coordination, various other things like that. Yeah, but you're right. You're right. This is, it's difficult to believe. I mean, it's, it, it's better than we think, and it's better than most of us think we're capable of believing. Dave? You had a smile on your face at a couple of points. So that point that you that point that you made in Luke chapter two, starting with verse ten, when the angel said to them, "Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people." That is correct. And so, I've in the past that's uh, going down to verse fourteen: "Glory to God in the highest, and peace, and on earth peace to goodwill in whom He is well pleased." 
there's always been that exclusivity, that separation. He's well pleased with these people, but he's not well pleased with these people. Yeah. But verse 10 erases that. It does. It does. And, and you know, I, I, I really, I really want to be, uh, pardon me? It says, oh, yeah, it does. I, you know, I, I want to unsaddle you from the burden of, of gosh, do I want to do this? I want to lift off of you the burden of becoming a universalist. Okay? Because we aren't responsible to know how. But we are responsible to believe what is revealed about what God is and where his heart is. If he says he sent Jesus for all, well, we need to believe that. And I believe that it is the height of rebellion and intellectual arrogance to be forced to make up a doctrine that explains that away, like limited atonement, for instance, just to try to protect the value of Jesus' blood. Why don't we just let it say what it says? And if you want to make an argument that, yeah, but because of free will, I'm not sure everybody's going to make it, that's fine. But that doesn't change what God's motive in sending his son was for. Let God have his motive. Well, I knew that'd get us rise out of one or two anyway. Let God have his motive. Remember, that's what I said, you guys. I said, let God have his motive. You can come on up, Dan. Sorry. Go, Richard. Uh, it's because of these scriptures that um, why I went to Burning Man. Uh-huh. It's because of these scriptures that I could see people differently. It's because of these scriptures and what God did in my life that I was able to see that all they need to do is be brought in or, or to discover in themselves. And at Burning Man, we were able to do that, either at least get them into a place where they go, wow, I didn't understand that. I, I, I didn't even know that I could be with God. I mean, it's just incredible. What, yeah, yeah. But it just to introduce people, the thing that we have a problem with is, when I was, uh, before any of this, before God changed me, and uh, I always thought I had to get Jesus into the conversation in order to, to witness. But then after God showed me this other way, it's not a matter of getting Jesus into it. He's already there. He's already in. Yeah, he's already <laughs> and So in. it's just a matter of, of, of speaking into their life to what God has already put there. Yeah. And then the, then the light comes on. And, and I think it's just a matter of getting people to understand. I'm looking at them and saying, you don't know what you have inside you. Yeah. And why, my desire is to try to get you to see what's inside of you so that you can have this life that I have. Yeah. And sometimes it doesn't... That's where a whole new way of witnessing comes into play, where you don't have to... You don't have... I, when I discovered this... It, it took, I just had freedom. I had all this weight taken away from me because I didn't have to do anything anymore. All I had to do is bring him, which is in me, to other people. And sometimes it's just being next to somebody, comforting someone, saying a kind word. And then, yeah, and then God 
sometimes puts in your mind to to do something for them, and and it and it, there's this blessing that happens. I mean, it just becomes so much simpler. Amen. Amen. All right, Dan. Hey, I, I had two other things to say, but that made me think of something better, <laughs> which which is I, I we came up with this idea. We called it. Uh, I think we suffer from Venn diagram Christianity. Okay, so you don't have the circles that overlap. Yeah, yeah. And I think how most of us and most of our denominations operate is here's the gospel or the truth. Let's call it the truth. Mm-hmm. All the biblical truth. Well, what happens is then we say, you know, this stuff over here, when people talk about it, it sounds kind of new agey. It intersects with the new age. So let's cut it out. Mm-hmm. And we lose that part of the truth. Right. This sounds like the crazy charismatics. Well, they're crazy. So let's cut that out. Because it might be misinterpreted. Because people might misinterpret mm-hmm. us. So mm-hmm. what we end up with is all these chunks out taken away out of the truth because we're afraid of what could be associated or where it could go. Mm-hmm. And so we retreat from what the whole truth is instead. Right. And that's one reason why you don't ever hear messages on the announcement that God was well-pleased with the people right. at Christmas. Yeah. Because he, he, he can't be well-pleased with them then. He has to be well-pleased with them after this <laughs> after whole program Easter, works. Or, yeah. Yeah. yeah, in fact, yeah, in fact it's, it's weird because even in that verse in Isaiah, when you listen to the original, the Messiah verse, mm-hmm. it says, you know, unto us a son is born. It also says he's the everlasting father. It's like saying the son is the father. And mm-hmm. you're like, wait, whoa, whoa. And yeah. there's too many weird things. And even in Luke 2... As we're reading it, it actually says he's born to you, and he's referring to the shepherds, not Mary, when he says that. The son is born unto you. Amen. 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 All right, guys. So here's the takeaway. Give yourselves permission, if you can, or even I would say go a little further. Maybe discipline yourselves for the next little while. When you think about the gospel, call it the good news. And then see if it doesn't begin to stir up that reaction like you get emotionally when you hear good news. Because I, I think it'll, it'll help us move forward. Okay? All right, praise God.